0: Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Hey, good morning, Connect Church. We are, and I'm going to tell you something, we are so excited that even on a rainy Sunday, uh, we can come together and make much of Jesus. We are so grateful that you are here. We are coming off of a, uh, a pretty great marriage retreat weekend, uh, one of two, got one coming up next week, but I'm going to tell you what, I know this, and let me just remind you of this uh, this morning, and that is this, that God loves you, that God loves your marriage, and God is for your marriage. Even if you can't come to marriage retreat, let me just remind you of that. That God loves you. That God loves your marriage. And that God is for your marriage. Hey, in fact, if you can't come this weekend, I, let, let me give you some help. Maybe to help your marriage out a little bit this afternoon if you're married in the house, okay? Uh, Gary Chapman came out with a book, Five Love Languages. And uh, of those love languages, we have words of affirmation. I'm going to make sure I get all these right. We've got acts of service. We've got receiving gifts. Uh, there's the love language of quality time. There's the love language of, of physical touch. And here's the concept. Everybody has a love tank, and how is it that it gets filled? And these are one of the five ways that he would write uh, they get filled. So let me just kind of give you some conversation starters. What this might look like In your marriage, how to play out words of affirmation in quality time. And and here we go, really useful and practical way. Um, From our marriage conference, you ready? Words of affirmation, your tacos are delicious. (laughs) I love this one, the acts of service, I made you tacos. Aaron, are you listening? Anyway, um, here's this one, receiving gifts. Here's a taco uh, that may help your marriage. Quality time, let's go out for tacos together. And then my favorite... Physical touch, let me hold you like a taco, okay? I'm going to tell you something, it's coming from my wife tonight. I'm going to look over it at her some point and go, let me hold you like a taco, right? And that's, that's my love language. Hey, glad you're here today. We continue in our series in the Gospel of John. Figuring out what it is to believe in the name of Jesus to have life, the very goal of the Gospel of John. We spent a few weeks camped out. In John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most celebrated verses in all of the Bible. We found out in week 1, John 3, 16, for God, we began there. And then last week, we began to venture into so loved. And what that looked like played out. Celebrating the agape love of God for us in Christ Jesus. A love that is undeniable. A love that is unattainable, meaning this, we can't earn it, only God can give it. And a love that is unbreakable. You see, this week, we begin to see the real scope of such a great love, the, really the target of this love. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, for God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have Everlasting life. We know this, that the source of so great a love, this agape love, is God. But the very scope of his love reaches to the world. The target of his love is the world. But what does Jesus mean when he says the world? It seems all-encompassing, but who is he speaking of? What is he speaking of? Well, let's first deal with this phrasing. And really my first challenge to you this morning, and that is simply this, to love the world. To love the world. I want us to stop for a moment, and I want us to consider this conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. I love how one author noted it this way. The Jewish person was accustomed to think of God loving Israel, the Jewish mind had no problem with the concept that God loved Israel. But no passage appears to be cited in which any Jewish writer maintains that God so loved the world. Hey, the Jewish folks were fine with God loving some people, but the idea that God would love all people was a foreign concept. Jesus' statement here in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, it is groundbreaking, it is culture shaping, and it is kingdom shaking. But what is it that Jesus means by the world? Does he, does he mean some planetary body, this blue globe suspended in space orbiting around a sun in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, we know this in the Greek language. The word here in John 3:16 is cosmos which means world. In the English language, it looks a lot like this. Very similar. And really what it speaks to is that which is ordered. If you study the the Bible at all, if you take a look at the nature and the creation around us, we realize this, that God is a God of order. And so that's the cosmos speaks of that which is ordered. It is the order things in the midst of what seems like chaos sometimes. That is the world. But in the context of John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus is clearly speaking not of a planet, but that he loves the people, the inhabitants of the world, all of humanity. We see this kind of played out in other passages of Scripture. We've already studied this already in our John series, but the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hey, not the planet, but the people. Watch this again in 1 John 2.2, meaning Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not just for our sins, but watch this, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hey, he's not talking about a planet, but the people. How about verse 17 after John 3.16? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Again, when Jesus uses this word world, He is speaking of the people, not the planet. Think of it this way, believer. The fact that God so loves the world, that God so loves people, means that you and I should do the same. We should love the world, we should love people. We, we do not hate the world that is the people. We do not hate different races from our... We do not hate different sexes. We do not hate sinners. We do not hate non-believers. We do not hate our enemies. Jesus was pretty clear on that. We simply do not hate and cannot hate. Why? Because God so loved the world. Believers cannot be haters when it comes to people. We must love the world. We must love people. But we also must be careful. I wanna make a statement about God's love that God's love is universal, meaning this, that He loves all people. But such universal love does not lead to universalism. Let me unpack this for us just for the next couple of minutes. God loves you, no matter your race, your gender, your economic class, rich or poor, the nation you live in, your politics, or your sin status. God's love is universal. But it does not lead to universalism. You say, "What is universalism?" It is a religion. It's an ideology that puts forth two things. Number one, that because God is love and because God so loves the world, that means everybody makes it to God when they die. Everybody makes it to heaven, and it sounds good in theory, but absolutely has no practical application because it is not true. Here is the second teaching of universalism: that all roads, all religions lead to heaven, lead to God. Hear me, church. While God loves all people, not all people love God. His love can only say, whosoever believes in Jesus. The teaching of Scripture is clear. That those who do not follow Jesus on earth will not follow him in eternity. If you think for a moment about hell, and let me just remind you a topic I have no glory in speaking on and no joy in preaching on, except for the good news that you don't have to go there. But if you think of hell for a moment, isn't hell nothing more than a continuation of what a person has wanted here on this earth? Isn't it granting a person in eternity that which they desired here on this earth, and that is a life free from God? And though it breaks my heart to preach about such a place, such a place, such a place does exist. You see, Jesus taught about it here in Matthew 25 at a shot to universalism. Then they, the unsaved, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Hey, can I make this statement? And by the way, many cults have been spurned off on this very one idea, the thought of hell. Just because you may not like the idea of hell does not mean that hell is not real. Universalism. The thought that, hey, listen, nobody goes there. Everybody gets to heaven somehow, some way. All roads lead to God and to heaven. I want you to hear me. Universalism is a lie. There's one way. His name is Jesus. Acts 4.12 reminds us, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus would later on teach in John 14.6 that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. Hear me, church. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other way to eternal life. There is no other way to God except through Jesus in John 3.16 makes this very clear for us. And the fact that God so loves the world means that he has sent us to do the same, to love the world, to love people. We have great commissions, don't we, in Scripture? In Matthew 28, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, where? Of all nations, Not just Seaverville, right? Not just where we live, but of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Watching this, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, says Jesus, to the very end of the age. What about Acts chapter 1, verse 8? And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Watch to the very ends of the earth. Let me tell you why I love reminding you of passages like this because they stand in stark contrast to some comments I've heard on many different occasions in the life of the church. Comments like this. Why do we got to send people across the world when we got lost people here in Severe County? Let me agree with one part of that statement. And that is this, that as a church, we we ought to be the leaders out front in loving and leading our community to Christ. But that does not cancel our obligation, our God-given mandate, our Christ-centered mission to take the gospel not to our own little world, but to the entire world. I want you to think of this, and I wrote this out the other day. The very fact that you and I are in Christ and we are a Christian And in a church in America means that someone before us, someone before you didn't adopt the notion that we should just keep the gospel in our own little part of the world. Hey, I have news for you. Jesus wasn't born on Boyd's Creek. He was born in Bethlehem some 6,300 miles away. Jesus wasn't raised in Knoxville. He was raised in Nazareth. The lake he ministered around early on wasn't Douglas, but a lake known as the Sea of Galilee in Israel halfway around the world. Jesus died in Jerusalem, not Johnson City. The tomb Jesus was laid in and soon vacated was a garden in the Middle East, not the old Christus Gardens in Gatlinburg. You see, the point is is that someone before us, long before you and I were born, Had a heart not just for their own little world, but the whole world. Meaning this, we are in Christ today and we are His church in America today because people took serious verses like Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and they loved the world. They loved people and were sent into the world with the gospel. God so loved the world. The people years ago, about, goodness, I would say four years ago, my family and I rescued, and that's the language compassion uses, a girl in the Dominican Republic who at the time was four years old. Right before COVID hit, I had a chance because as a church, we are a compassion church, and we're going to learn more about that in the next couple of weeks, but But I had a chance to go to the Dominican Republic, peek behind the curtains of compassion, make sure that, man, things are financially strong, all of those things. And then they allowed me the opportunity to meet this little girl. And this is the little girl we've been sponsoring as a family. Her name is Eliani. Let let me show you a really good picture of her. That's her beautiful little face. And for years now, every month, drafted from our account, is the money to ensure that she has access to education through the local church, that she has access to food. We send her birthday presents and Christmas presents every year. On my phone is an app where I upload pictures of my kids, and as we write her letters, and and she writes us letters back. And I'm going to tell you something. When I was in the Dominican Republic, and I had a chance to hug this little girl that we'd seen her picture for so long, and just just to cry over her, I was so thankful That God gave me the opportunity to love a little girl in the world. Not just my little world. But to love a little girl in the world who needed so much from the Lord. And it's a reminder that he loves all the little boys and all the little girls in the world. And that's why we did this. So that I could show my daughters and my son. That the scope of God's love is not just us and our family and our church family. But that he loves little kids all around the world who don't even look like us. But are beautiful. Don't live like us. She lives in such great poverty. Poverty. But he loves her. For God so loved Eliani. For God so love the world. The fact that God so loved the world means that God so loves you and me. Love the world. But as we celebrate God's love for the world, I have to also challenge you with what will seem at first glance, at first sight, a conflicting message. So uh, by all means, I want you to love the world. And here is the second part. Do not love the world. (laughs) Do I seem conflicted this morning to you? Do not love the world. This is going to shake out here in just a moment. In William Shakespeare's play Hamlet, there's a famous soliloquy. And it says this, to be or not to be, that is the question. But today I have a better question, and that is this, to love the world or to not love the world? That is the question in light of my challenge in John 3.16 to love the world comes the very same John pinning a letter to the church and he writes this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, now watch this, we pivot from people to something else, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We, We are now pivoting from a person to what seems to be a sinful system at play. These things come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Hey, can I just remind you of something today, church? Just the truth. If you love the world, it will pass away, and it will take you with it. If you love the world, it will pass away. Man, it's going to take you with it. But what does John mean here in 1 John? What does he mean by the word world here? It seems different than how Jesus used it in John 3.16. Well, John MacArthur would write this. In this verse, cosmos, or the world, does not speak to the physical earth or universe. Rather, the spiritual reality of the man-centered, Satan-controlled system of this present age, which stands as an enemy that is hostile to God... And hostile to his church. What John is speaking of not loving here is a sinful system. He is not speaking of the world that is people. A sinful system that is at work. We are reminded by Paul of this sinful world, this sinful system that is at play. Watch this in Ephesians chapter six. By the way, there's not two Ephesians. I don't know where that one came from. Just ignore that. Ephesians 6.12. First, Ephesians, Uh, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of, watch this, this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What he is speaking of in 1 John 2, the very world I'm asking you not to love, is a world system that is directed by none other than Satan himself. Here's a part of his resume. Watch this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That the God of his age, by the way, did you know that that's a title for Satan? God, little g of this age, has blinded the minds of believers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Here's another part of his resume. Ephesians 2.2. 2. He is called the prince of the power of the air. And watch this in John chapter 12. He is the ruler of this world. This is the world system we are told not to love. We must love the world that is the people of the world, as God loves the world in John three sixteen, But we must not love the world system that is sinful, that is selfish, and stands against God, His Word, His truth, His design, and the gospel. Such a world system is not our home. It's not our home. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You know what's amazing about this room right now? With the exception of our little babies over here, every one of us have tasted and seen what this world has to offer in some way. And every one of us in Christ have walked away dissatisfied hurting and broken from a world system that promises pleasure and delivers in death we all know what it is to walk away dissatisfied with this world because it's a reminder that because of Jesus we can very much while living in this world be reminded that we were made for another world a world where it is not sinful a world with no selfishness and a world that is for God and His glory and our good. But what does this world system look like? Guys, I don't have time in today's message to give you every ounce of descriptions of this world system that is against God. What I really can do is just uncover maybe one of His tactics. That's all we have time for, just one of the tactics that are at play in this world system, and that is the tactic of sowing confusion, concerning God's design. And we see it at work in our culture. The first work of Satan in the garden, do you remember what it was? Did God really say? Remember that? Did God really say, if you ate that tree, you'd die? And what he was doing was, was he began sowing confusion to God's design for Adam and for Eve. Because if he could get them to question God, and his love for them, and his design for them, he knew this, that by sowing confusion, he had them. And those tactics are still very much alive in the world today. Let me give you just two examples before we head towards the finish line. Did God really say that marriage is the union of one man and one woman in a covenant-committed relationship for life? Hey, really? Really? God really say that? I read places like this in Genesis chapter 2 verse 22, 24. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. I, I see Jesus later on in Matthew chapter 19 absolutely reinforcing the very same teaching. The truth and the celebrated truth of God's word we spent all weekend celebrating is that marriage As gifted and designed by God is the union of one man and one woman in a covenant-committed relationship for life. And we celebrate that design in a culture that says, but did God really say? I mean, are you you sure? And we sow confusion. So that for some of you, for me to say that out loud, you're like, can somebody say that in the microphone nowadays? We're live streaming right now. What if, what if Facebook begins to censor and YouTube begins to cancel and people begin to write things and you go, how did we get here? Because there is an enemy, a system of this world that is sowing confusion into what God's design is. Hey, hey, by the way, church, can I also remind you of what Genesis 2.24 doesn't say? It doesn't say that a man should leave his father and his mother and go shack up with his girlfriend to make sure marriage could work out one day. That's the confusion that's being sown in by this world that the church is adopting and is destroying people's lives. Boyfriends don't get husband privileges. Girlfriends don't get wife privileges in God's design. That only comes when we celebrate the union of one man and one woman in a covenant-committed relationship for life. There's another place, and, and by the way, I picked these two topics because um, click over to CNN and Fox News, and this is what's all over the place. And when the world's talking about it and the church isn't, there's a problem. Another place, did God really say in Genesis 5, two that he created them male and female? Did Jesus later reiterate that in the Gospel of Matthew, that he created them male and female? Hey, can I just remind you something about your God-given gender? The gender you were assigned biologically at birth by God. Now listen to me, your gender is to the glory of God and to your good. to the glory of God and to your good. I want you to hear me church, in what almost seems as foolishness to speak it from this stage. Little boys cannot become little girls. Little girls cannot become little boys in God's design there's no transition between the two and I want you to hear me this is a message that needs to be taught from pulpits but also in your home you need to look at your sons and daughters and remind them hey son the fact that you're a little boy that is to the glory of God and that is to your good and that is the truth of God's design hey little girls your gender is to the glory of God and to your good. And it's part of God's design for his glory and for your good. And yet we have a culture that is sowing confusion and destroying our children in the process. And so, Anthony, we love the world that is the people. And we do not love the world, this system that is ran by Satan. That is sinful and selfish and sins against God and his word and his truth, his design and the gospel. But how do we not love the world? You ready? Let me just give you some points. Number one, do not bow to the world. (laughs) We must not compromise our biblical convictions. We do not waver on God's Word and truth. We do not seek to change God's Word to be more palatable to culture. Trust me, this culture, as with all cultures, will pass away, but the Word of God will remain forever. We are not a people who bow or bend to anyone but Jesus. I love what John Brown once said. He said this. It is infinitely better to have the whole world for our enemies and God for our friend than to have the whole world as our friends and God for our enemy. Do not bow to the world. And here's the second thing. Do not be silenced by the world. I want you to hear me, church. If you love the world, if you speak the truth in love, and you work to the workings of the gospel into the world, you are not a bigot. You are not anti-anything. In fact, you are pro-truth. You are not intolerant. You are none of the names that you will be called by the world simply because you believe the truth of God's word and speak that truth in love. Let me remind you something about name-calling. Name-calling is the weapon of choice for those who always have the weakest argument. Let me ask you, church, who are the ones telling you to shut up and sit in the corner? You see, it's a world system whose the greatest threat to them is the gospel of Jesus Christ in the mouth and in the heart and in the hands of His church. Do not be silenced by the world. And here's the last thing maybe a little misspelling here, but do not lose your love for the people of the world. In all of this, as you, as you don't bow to the world and as you're not silenced by the world, do not lose your love for the people of the, word, the world. Speak up. Stand up. Because we cannot shut up while souls of the lost are piling up. We must take the gospel to the people of the world that we're reminded in John chapter 3, verse 16 that God really loves Let me share these two takeaways for you. On your way home, number one, love the people of the world. Don't you be a hater. Believers are not haters. And haters are not believers. Love the people, the broken people, the hurting people, the people who look nothing like you, the people who believe nothing like you, the people who act nothing like you. Love the people of the world. And then, Do not love the way of the world. The sinful, selfish, standing against God and His Word and His truth and His design and the gospel. Do not love the way of the world. I want to close with this. Just a generation after Jesus is a work written called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. You say, well, that's a weird name. That word, that name polycarp means rich in fruit. And I'm going to tell you something. Though you may not know this brother's name, he is a brother in Christ whose life bared much fruit. And even in his death, because he died for Jesus, it bore so much fruit. You say, well, I've never heard of this guy. Well, you have heard of the guy he followed, the guy he was a disciple of. He was a disciple and perhaps the most famous disciple of the gospel writer John. Whose, book we, whose gospel we've been in for weeks now. He was a close follower of John and a great lover of Jesus. Um, this work called the martyrdom of Polycarp has a pretty incredible provenance. That means this. It has an incredibly rich and historically accurate way it got to us today. In fact, let me read this to you. And I'll, I'll kind of cut a little bit of this, but here's the provenance of this letter. This account of Polycarp's martyrdom Gaius copied from the papers of Irenaeus, one of Polycarp's disciples, a man in the arena. And I, Socrates, wrote it down in Corinth from the copy of Gaius. And I, Pionius wrote it down again from the aforementioned copy of Socrates, having searched it out, gathering it together when it was well nigh worn out by age. Hey, hey guys, this is the real story of how Polycarp died for Jesus. Why would I share it with you? Because I see in Polycarp this perfect union of loving the world that is the people with the gospel, and at the same time not loving the world which is bowing to the world, being silenced by the world. Let me share his martyrdom with you. I love how Mark Batterson sums this up. He says, like a scene straight out from the gladiator, Polycarp is dragged into the Roman Colosseum. Discipled by the apostle John himself, This aged believer faithfully and selflessly led the church at Smyrna through the persecution prophesied by John, his spiritual father. Do not be afraid, John wrote, of what you're about to suffer in Revelation 2.10. Be faithful even to the point of death. John had died a half century before, but his voice still echoed in Polycarp's ears as the Colosseum crowd chanted, Let loose the lions! And in that moment, as the crowd cried for the beast to be let loose, to tear apart Polycarp because of his faith in Jesus, Irenaeus and the disciples of Polycarp heard a voice from heaven, and so did Polycarp. They simply said this, Strong Polycarp, play the man. Strong Polycarp, play the man. They would attribute that voice to Jesus, strengthening Polycarp in his last moments, but everybody heard it. Days before, the Roman bounty hunters had tracked him down, but he did not resist. Like Jesus entering Jerusalem, Polycarp was led into the city of Smyrna on a donkey. The Roman proconsul implored Polycarp to recant, to state simply that Caesar is Lord and that Jesus is not. But Polycarp held his tongue and he held his ground. The proconsul, he prodded, swear and I will release you. Revile the Christ. And listen to the words of this old man, this old believer. Eighty and six years have I served him and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The die was cast. Polycarp was led into the center of the Colosseum where three times the proconsul announced, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. The bloodthirsty crowd chanted by de- for death by beast. But the proconsul said, no. His death will come by fire. As the executioner seized the wrist of Polycarp to nail him to the stake, Polycarp stopped them. And he said to them, He who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to do so without the help of your nails. As the pyre was lit beneath Polycarp, he uttered out one last prayer to God. And his disciples recorded it. I bless you, because you have thought me worthy of this day, in this hour to be numbered among your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ. And soon the flames engulfed him, but strangely the people in the crowd noticed that they did not consume him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, it seemed as if Polycarp was fireproof. Instead of the stench of burning flesh filling that Colosseum, the scent of frankincense wafted throughout the crowds. Using a spear, the executioner ended Polycarp's life. And there his lifeblood drained. But not before Polycarp. This disciple of John, this lover of Jesus, lived out John's challenge to him to be faithful even to the point of death. Polycarp died fearlessly and faithfully, loving the people of the world with the gospel and refusing to bow to the world, not loving the system of the world. And he lived up to his name. For that day he bore much fruit of the love of Christ. Polycarp played the man. Will you? Will you play the woman that God has called you to be? To love the world that is the people, yet to do not love the world that is the system. Young people, will you play the part? Mom and dad, grandparents, will you play the man and be used of God to love the world that is the people, and to not love a world that is a system that is bent against God. Simple challenge from today. Play the man. Let's pray together, can we? As we, play, as we pray together, I, uh, I mean, today I'm just simply moved to challenge the church to play the man. To stay strong and to love a world of broken people. Why? Because when it says God so loved the world, that means he loved our brokenness. That he sent his son. But let me ask you something. (laughs) Who are you loving outside your little world? My little world consists of my wife and my kiddos, my family. And I've got to ask myself the question, who am I loving And leading to Jesus. Hey, let's go back to less than a month ago. Everybody writes New Year's resolutions, right? I want to be less fat. I don't want to do this as much. I don't want to do that. We got to do better with money. How many of you in this room on January 1 put on a list, made a note in your heart and your mind, and I want to lead somebody to Jesus this year? by a show of hands. Anybody put that on there? Yeah, I didn't raise my hand either because it didn't make my list. And then we realize we have this incredible love for God so loved the world. It's a love that is incredible, but it's also ascending love. And I, listen, I just want to remind you that Jesus saved you not just so that you can just alone enjoy your salvation and keep it to yourself, but that you could share it with the world, with the people he so loves. So my challenge to you is to love the world and to take the gospel outside of your little world to other people that you work with, that you go to school with, that you interact with. And believer, at the same time, do not love the world. I heard it said this way. I looked for the church and I found it in the world. And I looked for the world and I found it in the church. Listen to me. This sinful and selfish system of the world that stands against God and His truth and His word and His design and the gospel. Church, hear me. Don't allow that world into you. you know what a lot of us have there are parts of this world that we're told not to love that we do and now's a good moment to say lord forgive me thank you again for checking out our podcast be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services if you'd like to give to support our ministry you can do that at our website that's connectchurchpf.com hope you enjoyed and have a great week